0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with blowback from the US retaliation against the IRGC and Kud's forces as well as Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria from the strikes on 85 targets at seven sites. With popular anger against the US in Iraq inflamed, We will assess whether the pro-Iranian government in Baghdad will be forced to kick out the 2,000 U.S. personnel in the country who could become hostages if the bombing continues, as the President and the Pentagon have promised. Joining us is Joshua Landis, who is the Director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma and a fellow at the Quincy Institute. He writes Syria Comment, a daily newsletter and blog on Syrian politics. Then we'll look into conflicting reports coming out of Ukraine claiming President Zelensky is about to fire the head of his military general, Zaluznyi, who on Thursday offered up a new strategy to defeat the Russian invaders. Joining us is Taras Kuzio, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kyiv Mohila Academy and associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. He's the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, nationalism, and crime, and most recently, Russia's nationalism and the Russian Ukrainian War. Then finally, we'll examine how the Supreme Court in a 2020 ruling might have opened up a way for Donald Trump and Republican state legislatures to steal the 2024 election by naming their own electors in the Electoral College vote. Joining us is Lawrence Lessig, professor of law and leadership at Harvard Law School, host of the podcast Another Way founder of EqualCitizens.us and co-founder of Creative Commons. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Antonin Scalia on the United States Supreme Court and has received numerous awards. He is the author of Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Our Congress and a Plan to Stop It, One Way Forward, The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic, and his new book, Out in Ten Days, is How to Steal a Presidential Election. We'll discuss his article at the New York Times, Here is One Way to Steal the Presidential Election. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep background briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org/donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And Joining us now, Joshua Landis, who is the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma and a fellow at the Quincy Institute. He writes, Syria Comment, a daily newsletter and blog on Syrian politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Landis.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And The United States has retaliated against uh, Iranian proxies, particularly the Revolutionary Guard Corps, striking more than 85 targets in seven sites both in Iraq and in Syria. The Iraqi government is is expressing outrage at their invasion of sovereignty and warning that the entire region can be inflamed. Similar noises are coming out of Syria, but what's your sense of, of what damage was done and what the role of Russia might be? Because as far as I know, there are a lot of IRGC, Revolutionary Guard Corps, Iranian and Quds, assets inside the envelope inside Syria that's protected by Russian anti-aircraft defenses. So what's the situation there? Did they strike targets that outside of that umbrella? And we're not hearing a lot from, in other words, we're not hearing a lot about the reaction from Syria and also the, the so-called bomb damage assessment, although apparently a dozen or so people have been killed.
1: Well, we, we, um, in Iraq, there has been 13 killed. That's a reported number in Syria, 23 killed. And in both countries, a lot more wounded scores, wounded some civilians, the Iranians say that none of their soldiers have been killed. Uh, no IRGC and neither is Iraq nor Syria or outside, um, organizations reporting that any Iranians have been killed. So this is Syrians and Iraqis who've been killed. And um, the Syrians don't count very much for America. America has terrible relations with the Syrian government and has um, Syria under sanctions. So it it doesn't worry about killing Syrians, but Iraqis do count because America is presently negotiating a new strategic um, agreement with the Iraqi government which has asked US troops to leave the country. And this bombing has inflamed relations between the central government and America once again, because we have to remember that the Islamic resistance forces, there's a a scad of militias that are connected to Iran and supported by Iran that are Iraqi militias, Shiites mostly, who um, have attacked the American bases. And by killing them, they are under the putative control of the Iraqi government. And the prime minister of Sudan of Iraq is connected to them. So he, he has a lot of pressure on him to denounce this. And politicians from one end of Iraq to the other have been saying it's not worth it to have America based on our land if this is just gonna provoke a tit for tat war between Iran and the United States where Iraqis get killed. This is not, the cost benefit of having the United States here is not good for Iraq. So there's a lot of pressure on Iraqi politicians to push America out of Iraq. And that that could be a casualty. Of course, President Biden does not want to be pushed out of Iraq before elections. That wouldn't be good because it would weaken the situation in Syria. Uh, the Syrian there's only 900 American troops in Syria, and they rely uh, for their safety and their position on these bases in Iraq. So um, it's it's a delicate situation. Clearly Biden had to strike back with three dead Americans and the Gaza situation firing up. they've They've held a strong line in support of Israel and and um, and he doesn't want to look weak. Republicans. In Congress, have been beating the drums, uh, saying we need to strike Iran directly. Clearly, Biden doesn't want to do that because it would it could escalate at a time when he wants stability. But um, but so that's he's trying to he's trying to thread a delicate needle here. And I think I think that Washington didn't realize they were going to kill so many people. They gave plenty of warning. There was several days warning, thinking that perhaps people would vacate these bases that were vulnerable out there by the Iraq-Syrian border. But they didn't. They didn't get the message, and um, many were killed. So
0: what's the possibility then of the situation getting out of control in Iraq with popular anger against the United States? The US, there's 5,000-plus US troops there and an important base in Erbil in the Kurdish north. The US troops are vulnerable. And it's still a little ironic, isn't it, Joshua, that it, the United States uh, were allied with the same Iraqi Shia militias that, that have been armed and trained by Iran. They were fighting ISIS together, weren't they? And they simply stayed. Is that, is that the way it worked out?
1: Um, well, you're right. The, the, they were fighting. The United States and the Shiite militias were taking the fight to ISIS together. As we recall, when ISIS was swarming into Iraq in the summer of 2014, almost got to Baghdad, all of the politicians in Baghdad were calling for a general mobilization, a popular mobilization, and many Shiite militias were formed at that time, backed by Iran, and Iran was helping the government in Baghdad with America, because it's a Shiite pro-Iranian government. And, and so all the forces were allied, now of course these militias the popular mobilization militias did not disband a- after the fight with ISIS was largely done they remained strong and Iran continues to support them America would like them to demobilize uh, but of course they haven't so that's the the delicate situation that America faces now will it will this metastasize you know i think that neither Iran nor the United States wants this to become a regional war. Uh, it would be bad for both of them. The The Iranians do want the United States to leave Iraq, to be pushed out of Iraq and Syria. It, it has much better leverage to do that in Iraq because the majority of the population are Shia, they sympathize with Iran, many of them, pres- the Prime Minister of Iraq, excuse me, as a Sudani is quite um, well disposed towards Iran. But he wants he wants personally, I think he wants America there too to, as a counterbalance to Iran. But popular opinion, uh, if he wants to save his government may may force his hand to ask the Americans to leave. And that's what we've been seeing happening. Now, will Russia step in? No, I don't think so. The Russian position in Syria has been to try to separate itself from Iran and the fight with Israel. Russia has a good relationship with Israel Russia has allowed Israel to bomb Syrian pro-Iranian emplacements at will without using any of its aircraft or anti-aircraft missiles. So Russia and Israel have a good understanding. I think Russia is trying to stay out of the swinging door between the United States and Iran and between Israel and Iran. And uh, so in that sense, I I think it can be contained, but it's, it's troubling. For the position of united states in both syria and iraq because all the regional governments want america out we have to remember that turkey one of america's big allies nato member wants america out of syria very badly because america is arming the kurdish uh, troops there who turkey says are related and connected to the pkk this big terrorist organization Kurdish organization that Turkey has designated as terrorist. United States has two, so Turkey wants America out and wants these Kurds weakened, and it's it's been killing the Kurdish leadership that America relies on quite um, steadily. So so that's a, so Turkey is trying to undermine America's position there. So is the Syrian government. So is the Iraqi government and Iran. So America's in a very delicate situation with these bases, quite vulnerable in the middle of the desert, strung out a long line of bases that are hard to defend.
0: Mm. So could you de- describe them then as potential hostages, the Americans in the in the they region?
1: Are, they are, and already we're seeing the Iraq militias beginning to send missiles and drones to these bases in reprisal for the killing of their their men. So it, it's hard to see how this is going to stop. It's going to continue on. Now Americans are pretty good at shooting down most of these missiles. And we, we have to remember that the drone that got into this base in Jordan, it w- it was a mistake. The drone followed the same path that American drones had been using to go in and out of the base. And so people in the base mistakenly saw this Iraqi drone, Iraqi Iranian drone as a a friendly airplane. And that's how it penetrated uh, the cover of the American base and got in and could shoot up some dormitories. But that's unlikely to happen again. So America may feel that they can defend their troops inside these bases, which they've done quite successfully. Iraq and Syrian uh, militias have fired about 160 missiles and sent so many drones against their bases, and all of them have been shot down. None of them have been successful in killing American soldiers. There have been some concussions because of explosions, but but that's the extent of it.
0: Right, but the United States uh, sent these uh, B-1 bombers all the way from an airbase in Texas, and uh, that's why I asked about the Russian uh, anti-aircraft well, that, 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 umbrella. Think, they must have obviously that. avoided that. But if one that, of those gets shot down it's it's going to be a massive escalation, right?
1: Yes, that is true. but I think America sent those planes from the United States because regional governments don't want to participate right in this. and right. the jordan Jordanian government put out a disclaimer already this morning saying that they had nothing to do with this attack, nothing went from Jordanian territory. I think the local governments in Qatar is probably feeling the same way. They're angry at America for its support of Israel in Gaza, and they don't want to be seen um, carrying America's water. So uh, the U.S. was was in a sense obliged to send these planes all the way from U.S. territory.
0: But given their massive payload, this was a kind of shock and awe, wasn't it? Here they are bombing these desert garrisons in the middle of nowhere, where the Iranians and the Kurds and the IRGC people had plenty of time to get out so the only people that left were local people apparently who were killed right no no Iranians uh, were killed as far as we know there's an element of theater here would you agree
1: yes this is an element of theater the united states had promised that it was going to hit back it was going to hit back in a in a um, in a um, very controlled way at a time and you know, uh, location of America's choosing, not Iran. So that meant Iraq and Syria. And we we may see more of these strikes. Uh, I think the United States has made a big um, impression, and it certainly has demonstrated that it's not going to allow its troops to be shot at without, um, you know, at least a 10 to 1 um, kill ratio.
0: Right, but the U.S. has sort of dug a hole for themselves in saying, that this is going to continue. And we don't know how frail the relationship is now in Iraq. Uh, There were already negotiations underway before this all happened to reconfigure and redraw the U.S. relationship with Iraq. Now Iraqi officials are screaming from the rooftop. They're furious. So if you have more bombings, it's likely to make it even worse. So I'm not sure where this is heading. What do you think?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the 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 implications that you're that you're underlining here is that this helps Iran. You know, Iran is in a very strong position here because they have a lot of support in Iraq, and by goading the United States into killing Iraqis, uh, they're inflaming local, uh, you know, local passions against America. That's going to cause America to be kicked out of the country. So by looking tough, the United States is actually undermining its own position in Iraq and alienating the Iraqi government, um, whose goodwill America depends on. So that's the that's the that's the danger that America faces in Iraq. And Iran is I, I, Iran is delicately playing these the strings of this you know, this little orchestra here.
0: And meanwhile, the war in Gaza inflames the entire region, right? Uh, Hamas is more popular than ever in both the Sunni world and the Shia world. And Iran, of course, is benefiting enormously from this situation. Is there any chance that that war can be ended or that there can be some kind of ceasefire? That would clearly calm things down,
1: wouldn't it? It would. It would indeed. You know, only three months ago, the access of resistance, as it's called, the pro-Iranian groups throughout the Middle East were scoffed at by most Arabs because they had done nothing to help Palestinians and done a lot to hurt fellow Arabs in civil wars and in Iraq and in, in Syria and in Yemen. But today, because of the Gaza situation, Arabs are, you know, cheering once again for these Iranian-backed forces, for resistance. They want resistance, and like with the Houthis, who are now seen as, you know, regional heroes for taking on shipping and Israeli and American ships. So Iran has got this, Iran is in a a very, um, even though it's weak militarily, it's weak economically, It's strong in terms of its regional politics at this moment because of Gaza. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I don't see the situation in Gaza improving anytime soon. It doesn't look like, you know, Netanyahu wants to stop. His government's fate hangs on the the war party. And the United States has shown very little willingness to challenge Netanyahu on this.
0: So we can end. I don't want to don't want to sound trite now, Josh, but this is a powder keg, and we're you know likely to spark it any more because we're already pledged to continue the bombing, and it's the initial reactions from Iraq are pretty frightening. So, if you're a betting man, what are the chances of being one and
1: one in ten of this war becoming a regional war? Well, it is a regional war. It's already a regional war. It's you know, it's a low-intensity regional war. Uh, lots of probing on all sides, but it's a it's a war for the hearts and minds of Middle Easterners, and in that war, I'm afraid uh, America is losing right now. It, it it may be good for the president uh, in his domestic war uh, with President Trump, but it's not good for the United States in the war for the hearts and minds of Middle Easterners.
0: Well, Joshua Landis, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: Well, it's a pleasure talking with you, Ian, as always.
0: Well, thank you, Josh. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Landis, who is the director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Oklahoma and a fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He writes the Syria Comment, a daily newsletter and blog on Syrian politics. We're going to get a brief station break. and back looking into conflicting reports coming out of Ukraine claiming President Zelensky is about to fire the head of his military, General Zaluzny. No one likes us, I don't know why We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try But all around, even our old friends put us down Let's drop the big one and see what happens We give them money, but are they grateful by and Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Taras Kuzio, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev Mihola Academy and an associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. He's the author of and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Taras Kuzio. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks for joining us, Sataris. And I'm hoping you can straighten out some of the confusion here about what's going on between uh, President Zelensky and his military leader, uh, General Zelensky. There's been all kinds of rumors that Zelensky was about to fire his popular military chief, uh, Zelensky, and now uh, you get this essay from just a couple of days ago from Zeluzny outlining a strategy for Ukraine to prevail in this war with Russia and it looks like, uh, well, let me ask you, what, what's going on? Well, I don't think this is that unusual.
2: Um I listened to um, and have read from history that this same kinds of conflicts existed in World War Two between uh, British and American political and military leaders, uh, and in the Korean War and in the Vietnam War. So these are quite common to have. Um, it is a bit surprising it's so public. Of course, um, back in World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, there was no 24-hour TV or social media, so that amplifies um, these kinds of questions. So I'm, I'm not—I wasn't as surprised as many people. I mean, a lot of this really boils down to the frustrations that the counteroffensive of last year didn't go as optimistically as many be- believed it would be. But I mean, I mean, if we were to analyse this a bit deeper, we would see that the, the the reasons for that are nothing really to do with personal conflicts between uh, President Zelensky and Commander in Chief, uh, Commander of the Army. Uh, General Zaluzhny. It's more to do with all all sorts of things, including, by the way, um, uh, something I've written about um, and complain about regularly on 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 Twitter. Now called X, um, President Biden's drip drip supply of weapons to Ukraine, which pro which delayed uh, Ukraine's ability to t- to take the fight to Russians. So. The, the roots of, of these frustrations between these political and military leaders really, I think, are more a, a reflection of um, um, the kind of prolonging of the war now, which is likely, um, meaning many more people are going to be killed, particularly on, the, you know, on both the Ukrainian and especially on the Russian side, um, because um, opportunities were not used Back in in the fall of 2022, spring of 2023, um, to take a really break through the Russian lines, um, because what happened, um, I mean this is the kind of background to the frustrations. The counteroffensive uh, began in the summer of 2023, but it was about eight to nine months too late and that eight to nine months allowed the Russians to build three lines of fortifications, lay tens of thousands, if not more, of mines, and to do a mass mobilization in Russia, which brought in 300, 400,000 troops. So um, that really solidified um, the Russian defenses of occupied southeastern Ukraine. Prior to that, prior to these eight to nine months, Um, Ukraine could have had a very strong possibility of breaking through and reaching the the Azov Sea, the Black Sea, Um, because the Russians were on the run in September, October of 2022. Remember the route that the Russian army had in Kharkiv, and then the liberation of Kherson in late 2022. Um, So the Russians were on the the kind of fallback. They They were being pushed back but they were allowed eight to nine months. And that, and the reasons for that are really quite simple. The Biden administration, together with France and Germany, but here the United States is the most important, um, uh, pursued a, a drip, drip supply of weapons to Ukraine because they never outlined the goal. And they still have not to this day. The U.S. has never outlined the goal of Russia's military defeat. Um, So they only supplied enough weapons for Ukraine not to be defeated, but not enough weapons sufficiently in the right time and of the right type um, to ensure Russia's military defeat. And the reason for that is that um, the Biden administration was very similar to, I remember, back in 1990-91, when uh, President George Bush Sr. um, was also of a similar mindset. Then he was afraid of the disintegration of the USSR and the Biden administration is afraid of the defeat of Russia and the disintegration of the Russian Federation. And so that really colored the whole um, military operations in 2023, prevented Ukraine to break through um, because uh, Ukrainians were just getting slaughtered on those mines and fortifications um, and then that in turn has led to frustrations and and kind of an, an increase in those tensions between political and military leaders in Ukraine.
0: Well, at this point, of course, Taras, the Ukrainian military simply don't have the artillery shells to retaliate against uh, Russian artillery in terms of counter-battery strikes. So it's pretty dire situation. It's, it's a World War I standoff, which is what Zelensky originally said in his interview with The Economist, which apparently yeah. angered uh, Zelensky. But it's a dire situation now. But just to go back to these rumors of a rift between the two, the political leader, the president Zelensky, and the military leader, Zelensky, it now seems like it was all a storm in a te- teacup yeah. Is it possible that it was FSB Russian disinformation that was pushing this? Because all the Western press seemed to have fallen for it—that Zelensky was about to fire Zelensky.
2: Well, I think that there was some truth in that. I don't listen. This is—I is, don't think this is anything to do with Russian disinformation. Russians can't make something up like this; they can just amplify it and exaggerate it, and and kind of talk about look, look how bad the situation is. They're, they're squabbling amongst themselves well you know that's because russia isn't a di- isn't a democracy in democracies you do have these kinds of quarrels i mean just look at for example of you know colin Powell and the bush administration i mean this is normal in a democracy that you have these open disagreements in a in a dictatorship like russia's you don't um, because if somebody disagrees with putin they fall out of a window or drink some very bad tea um so i don't think that's an uh, that was unusual Um, I mean, I think that that, um, potential problem area is there, um, and it, it, but the sources of that frustration are the, the, the fact that, um, the, the offensive didn't go that didn't go as well as planned. I don't think the situation on the front line is as dire again as Western media are talking about. For one thing, um, yes, uh, Russia kind of has to some degree an advantage in in artillery shells, but many of these are North Korean uh, shells and they're they're terrible quality. Uh, Many of them don't work. Um, Secondly, um, this war is actually no longer really an artillery war, it's a drone war. And this is one of the other problems that uh, Ukraine had with Western training uh, during that period from 2022 to 2023 because Western armies have never fought a drone war. Um, they, they, and they've never fought a full-scale war like this since 1945. American and like, NATO wars have been counter-insurgency wars, and drones have not really featured pr- as prominently as in this war. Actually, drones um, in this war are now, have now become far more important than, um, than artillery. And um, Ukraine is doing quite well in that, in both home-produced drones um, and drones coming from the West. So I think the situation, uh, you know, it's not as good as it could be. The other plus sign is that the European Union um, finally is um, pulling its finger out, and it does seem to be on track to produce one million artillery shells. Which will be for Ukraine. It's also Ukraine. Uh, the European Union also bought a lot of artillery shells for very very quietly from South Korea and delivered them to Ukraine as well. So um, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more uh, positive things happening which the media don't pick on because bad news seems to sell media sell newspapers better than good news.
0: So let's talk a little bit about. What Zeluzny said in his latest uh, essay of uh, February the 1st about how Ukraine can prevail, what did you make of of his strategy?
2: Well, I think he's right. I mean, the problem that when you have, and again, as I say, Western armies have never experienced this, when you have so many um, threats from drones in the air, it's very difficult to launch an offensive because those drones will just destroy the troops, making the advance uh, f- forward. And those drones are extremely cheap to produce. I mean, we're talking, in some cases, hundreds of dollars, not even thousands of dollars. And they can destroy uh, tanks and armored personnel carriers that cost tens of thousands of dollars. So uh, we're in a different kind of world. You need uh, electronic equipment to jam the other side's drones. You need air superiority. You cr- uh, one of the pluses is going to be this, the, the coming to Ukraine in the next month or two, um, these F-16 fighter jets. I, you know, they're, they're about a year and a half too late, but they're finally coming from from NATO member states, including the U.S. Um, so all of that together um, would give Ukraine an edge. But at, as we are at the moment, you're in this kind of attritional phase where both sides are putting drones in the air, um, Ukraine is more on the defensive now Russia's trying to attack, but russia's um, attack attacks are literally sending cannon fodder to slaughter. I mean they're losing a thousand people a day approximately um, and and one wonders how long that can continue. Just today in Moscow, uh, women of uh, Russian soldiers active in Ukraine were arrested for protesting that their husbands and brothers. Fathers were so long being kept in the field. so I think that that Putin is on a, is on a kind of a, a difficult situation there. He can't keep sending Russian men to die in the, in, to the extent and level that he is doing at the moment. But Zaluzhny is right. you need one side needs to have some kind of breakthrough and in the Ukrainian case that is certainly air superiority. Um, and Ukraine is is helping that move forward by really doing a great job of attacking Russian airfields and destroying Russian aircraft. So, despite Russia having more air, air, more fighter jets and bombers, Russia does not have air superiority, and that will grow with the arrival of fighter jets F16s, uh, which are far superior than anything Russia has, and um, and then the drones and jamming jamming equipment. I think so. The hope is that. Least on the Ukrainian side, the Russians will wear themselves out. Um, they will lose too many people by the spring. And then Ukraine will be in a better position from the spring onwards with this new equipment, fighter jets and such like, to actually take the take the war to Russia.
0: So, just in the last minute, uh, General Bodanov, the head of Ukrainian military intelligence, he's also behind a program. The you know, Ukrainians are producing their own drones. Yes. The restriction of using American and NATO weapons has been that you can't fire weapons into Russia itself that come from NATO or the United States, but Ukraine is not restrained from sending its own weapons into Russia proper. Since the asymmetry is that Russia can strike anywhere inside of Ukraine, and they do attack civilian infrastructure and and civilians. So, you know, for example, the Ukrainians are now s- striking at Leningrad. It's, Is it likely to escalate to the point where the Russian public are going to get the message that there's a real war going on?
2: Well, I I think that's the intention. Particularly, the Ukrainians are doing two important areas that they're striking, which is Russia's energy infrastructure, oil and gas terminals, refineries and such like are being hammered, which will uh, really uh, deplete Russia's budget. Um, something like 40 to 50 percent of Russia's government budget is made from oil and gas exports, which was already declining because of um, the the European Union member states turning away from Russian oil and gas and becoming energy independent of Russia. And secondly, Ukraine is doing a great job in attacking Russian uh, command posts and airfields. Um, And even and I tweeted today that uh, Ukraine's military intelligence, um, headed by Budanov, of uh, following Mossad in actually assassinating Russian officers on Russian territory, who are involved in war crimes in Ukraine. So there's a lot of stuff happening. Ukraine. Um, I mean, historians in the future will be writing about how it was that a country without a navy, Ukraine, has been able to demolish Russia's Black Sea fleet. Um, both in destroying many vessels and in forcing it to move to uh, northern the northern ca- ca- Caucasus away from Sevastopol.
0: Well, Taras Kuzia, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've be speaking with Taras Kuzia, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev's Mahola Academy, and he's a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining how the Supreme Court in a 2020 ruling might have opened up a way for Donald Trump and Republican state legislatures to steal the 2024 election. Oh, And joining us now is Lawrence Lessig, who's a professor of law and leadership at Harvard Law School and the host of the podcast, Another Way, and the founder of EqualCitizens.us and the co-founder of the Creative Commons. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Antonin Scalia on the United States Supreme Court and has received numerous awards and is the author of Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Our Congress and A Plan to Stop It. One Way Forward, The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic. And his new book out in a little over a week is How to Steal a Presidential Election. And he has an article at the New York Times, Here is One Way to Steal the Presidential Election. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Lessig. So great to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And I take it that uh, your new book studies seven new scenarios on how the next election could be stolen, the November elections, which of, of course most analysts say are perhaps the most critical elections in US history, perhaps since even the Civil War. So given the weight of that, what is the most likely scenario here? Oddly enough, it seems to be related to a recent uh, Supreme Court ruling as as recent as 2020.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the premise of the book, which I wrote with my uh, friend and colleague, Matt Seligman, is that we're going to be in a very close election and that the norms of democracy have been shaken enough that people are willing to play constitutional hardball. Um, meaning they're willing to push the rules to the limits. And if that's true, then we think the most uh, likely in the sense of the most potentially effective strategy would be for the legislatures to exercise a power which the Supreme Court just gave them in the case that determined whether presidential electors had a constitutional right to vote their conscience when they vote as electors. Um, In that case, which I argued one of the cases before the Supreme Court, and I was a lawyer in the second one, um, the Supreme Court said state legislatures have the power to tell electors how to vote. And that electors have, quote, no rights against the state legislature's powers. So that means you could imagine an election, which is very close in a state. And on election day, let's say that the electors for Joe Biden are selected according to the regular rules of the um, election. But the governor of the state says, or the legislature of the state says, we don't have any confidence in those results. We think there was a lot of fraud or we think that ballots were stuffed or immigrants voted or whatever they wanna say. And so the state legislature passes um, either a resolution or a law depending on how you read the constitution to say that the Joe Biden electors have to vote for Donald Trump. Um, and if they don't vote for Donald Trump, then they will be removed and replaced with uh, an elector who will vote for Donald Trump. Now that procedure is technically authorized by the court's decision. I'm pretty confident if the court got a chance to reconsider the decision, it would it would write it a little differently to rule that out. But the challenge is there's no time. Um, you know, if the uh, if the legislature passes that law a couple days before the electors are supposed to vote, it's pretty hard to see how the case gets to the Supreme Court in time for them to tell the electors that they don't actually have to vote how the legislature tells them to vote. Um, and so, this is we think the most potentially impactful strategy that um, that could be taken.
0: Well, in your New York Times article, Lawrence, you write that the Supreme Court surely did not intend this result. Justice Elena Kagan's opinion to the court ends with the promise that, quote, here we the people rule, but the mechanism the court upheld means that it is actually the state legislatures that rule. Now, when you combine that with the fact that our politics have entered now a fact-free zone, and most Republicans believe Donald Trump's big lie uh, that he won the elections and Biden is a a fraud and an illegitimate president. If that's metastasized into a core Republican belief, then can't we assume that they will literally believe anything?
3: Yeah, I think that um, that's right. I mean, the scariest thing about that uh, fact, that Republicans believe that, is that the number of Republicans who believe that has not changed since January 2021. Um, it's essentially the same percentage since January 2021. Even though we've had three years of reporting showing that there's no evidence that in any of the elections was there any uh, ir- irregularities that could have uh, flipped even one of the states, one of the five states that would have needed to flip um, to flip the results. So we we are in this like bizarre period where people are able to live in their own um, uh, fact bubble, and really have no sense of what the other side thinks, and I think that creates, you know, certainly one of the most dangerous uh, features of our current political context that makes this kind of game gaming uh, gaming uh, realistic.
0: And in your book, you refer to the January sixth insurrection as both tragedy and comedy, and clearly Trump and his supporters have learned a lot from that. And you have the project at 2025 by the Heritage Foundation that seems to be have learned their lessons and seems to have come up with a, with a better toolkit. There's an article in the New York Review of Books by the historian Sean Wilentz, who argues that indeed there's a kind of rolling coup underway since the failed coup on January the 6th. So do you subscribe to that notion?
3: I do think that there's um, a significant proportion of the uh, trump base um, leadership, at least, uh, that is trying to structure a result however they can achieve it. Um, and so I, I think it's fair to call it a rolling coup in the sense that um, they're not really focused on what the underlying Democratic results is. Um, they're, they're focused on how do we craft the underlying democratic result to reach the results that they believe they're entitled to. So I do think this is a moment of um, extreme concern in democracy in America. And of course, if if this democracy fails um, in the way that we think it certainly can, uh, it would have catastrophic effects around the world.
0: But there's also an, another element and that is that we have never had the portent of such political violence and also the less than a subtext even now in terms of violence that's been promised and expressed against federal prosecutors, against judges, and even against Republican senators like Mitt Romney, who, because he, he's made a stand against Trump, has to spend something like $5,000 a day on personal security for him and his family.
3: Yeah, I I think that, um, you know, I think there have been a couple moments in American history where we've seen uh, the potential for that violence. You know, the one election that we talk about in the book a lot is 1876, when there are four states that sent multiple slates of electors to Congress, and Congress appointed a commission to decide which of the two slates in each of those four states would be counted. Um, And by one vote, they picked the Republican slate in each of those four states. And by virtue of that, the Republican candidate won by one electoral vote, uh, even though the Democratic candidate had won a majority of the popular vote. Now, that sounds reminiscent of what happened um, in 2016, maybe. Um, And most people kind of write that moment off because they say that the Republican at this stage, you know, is the pro-civil rights, um, uh, uh, um, pro-14th Amendment, 15th Amendment candidate. But they write off that um, fudging of the underlying election because they say that so many Black Republicans were excluded in the South that if they had been allowed to vote, they would have, they would have, they would have voted Republican and sort of would have, turned out the way it was uh, it it actually turned out. But on the night on the days that up leading up to this actually resolving itself, there were a militia all across the country that um, were rallied because they thought this was going to be a revival of the Civil War. Um, uh, And but we've never seen it manifested in the way that we saw it manifested on, on January 6th. Now, my own personal view is that I can't actually believe that Donald Trump was so stupid that he thought Violence on January 6 would force Congress to flip its uh, flip its votes and and vote him into office. Um, I actually think what Donald Trump was trying to do was to was to tee up Congress to send the results back to the states and have the states decide, um, uh, state legislatures decide whether they actually uh, ratify the results or not. and And that. Over the course of 10 days, you would have maybe a million, maybe two million people show up in Washington, so that when Congress actually finally got around to deciding uh, what what they were gonna do with these electoral votes, um, there would be so much implicit pressure that Congress would bend to to his will. Um, So I don't think violence was actually part of the plan. It was just, you know, surprise, surprise, Donald Trump was not able to execute his plan uh, effectively. but uh, but I do feel like um, we've like ra- we've we've revved people up, you know, because of the poison of social media um, and uh, and partisan media. We've revved them up to a place that um, that it's a tinderbox, and and any spark could explode into uh, into violence here. Um, that actually led me to change my mind about whether it's a good idea that electors have freedom to vote their conscience because. You know, I, I think that I argued that that was, in fact, the constitutional rule, um, that if they decided that they couldn't support the candidate or should support a different candidate, they should be free to do that. Um, and and the reason I thought that is that I thought that's what the Constitution required. And I also thought that, you know, this was a very reliable judgment that that never in our history had um they ever uh, been sub- subjected to bribery. And the one time that somebody flipped to the other side, they did it for pro-democratic reasons. So I thought that was fair. But I'm actually convinced now that electors could be coerced very easily. They wouldn't be bribed, but they could be coerced. You know, if the word came out that if you didn't su- switch your vote for Trump, um, there would be, uh, you know, danger in your family and and the like, then there are many states where electors aren't bound to vote in one way or the other, and they could switch their vote, and, and that would be very dangerous, which is why we also recommend that, uh, you know, the 26 of states need to go out and pass laws that actually bind the electors in a smart way um, uh, to vote for the, the winner of the popular vote. Um, um, and that, too, could be a, a strategy that could be deployed um, if, in fact, states don't do that.
0: But, Lawrence, we already have an example of coercion in Trump's phone call to the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, which is at the heart of the Atlanta trial that's going on. So what would stop Trump from making similar phone calls to the governors and legislatures of potentially rogue states that would change the electoral vote the way that they want it?
3: Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, You know, um, uh, I think what we saw with uh, Georgia officials and the Arizona officials was... Um, actually, extreme uh, cases of political courage. Um, but what I'm suggesting is that I don't know that we can, you know, if you're if you're an uh, an elector for Donald Trump for Joe Biden in a state like um, Arizona, let's say that amazingly Biden wins Arizona in 2024, and um, and all of a sudden you start hearing, you know, Proud Boy-esque like threats that uh, if you actually ratify Joe Biden's election, um, there will be consequences for your family. Um, I'm not sure exactly what we should expect an elector in that case to do because you know, he's not elected to the office. He's um, he's not going re- to run for the office again. It's not like you know, Ravensberger who you know wanted a political career and needed to stand up for integrity to maintain that career. Um, this is a, you know, just a ordinary citizen who's like put in this position of needing to cast a ballot. And I actually, I'm not sure whether Arizona has one of these laws, but if there's no law that requires them to vote for uh, uh, the candidate who won, um, but instead they're free to change their mind, um, which the Supreme Court's opinion suggests they are, then I would be worried that the pressure Donald Trump uh, unsuccessfully tried to wage against um, uh, the state officials would be effective if it were indirectly uh, placed against these electors. And and that's why it's urgently needed that these states pass laws that bind the electors uh, to make sure that they vote the way that the people have actually directed they vote.
0: So just in closing, though, Lawrence Lessig, there is a, a lot of despair, if not demoralization uh, on the political left amongst Democratic supporters. Uh, Biden's poll numbers are low, a lot of clutching of pearls going on in a sense that Trump may well win and the polls some of the polls indicate that he's ahead. But there's a larger context here which makes you understand why people are demoralized and cynical and mistrustful because uh, they're disillusioned about, for example, Citizens United, uh, look what it did to our politics, the work of the Federalist Society in stacking the Supreme Court, and of course the the vestiges of this electoral college that we've been talking about, and along with uh, partisan gerrymandering. So we have all these counter-majoritarian anti-democratic structures here. The deck is stacked against us, is it not? And how do you overcome that kind of sense of defeat?
3: Yeah, um, if it's really as important as people say it is, you overcome it by just fighting it. Um, I think it's critically important. I mean, you know, in the end, our book is a call for a whole set of reforms that would assure that we have a representative democracy that actually is uh, responsive to the, uh, the votes of the people. Um, and you're right, there's a bunch of them that's necessary. But I think people need to understand that if we don't succeed in this next election to assure that the winner of the popular vote is actually the person sworn in as president, then that's going to start us down a series of uh, um, uh, corruptions that, um, you know, I think uh, will change the character of the United States in ways that none of us really understand. So I think it's it's extremely important to get this one right. And there's a bunch of reforms, There's a whole bunch of reforms that should happen, but there's a handful that need to happen to make sure that it can happen right. And I think that's what we should be focused on.
0: Well, Lawrence Lessig, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Lessig, who's a professor of law and leadership at Harvard Law School and the host of the podcast Another Way and the founder of EqualCitizens.us and the co-founder of the Creative Commons. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Antonin Scalia of the United States Supreme Court and has received numerous awards and is the author of Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Our Congress and A Plan to Stop It, One Way Forward, The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic and his new book, Out in Ten Days, is how to steal a presidential election. And he has an article in the New York Times, Here is One Way to Steal the Presidential Election. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that next door in